Coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss Siemens no longer in the dark about power plant vulnerabilities. Next up, lowering the barrier to entry, API hooking and water bear malware. And finally, our fourth round of Two Truths and a Lie. Our final episode of Breaking Badness in 2019 is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 32, recorded on December 16th, 2019. I'm your co-host, Kelsey. The fun has just pee-pun, LaBelle. With me, co-host Emily. All I want for Christmas is to not have to come up with nicknames anymore, hacker. And last but not least, Stark, malware aficionado, Salah. (sighs) Nothing like the hot breath into a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing we use the same one every week. Yeah, seriously, let's not share our hot breath. What does that mean? Uh, share hot breath. Another word for antibodies. Hot breath. Oh, no. All right, so we've got two articles for you all today, and we're excited to end the year on a, a good note with you all. We're going to be on a bit of a holiday break here until the first few weeks of January. Um, so just thank you for being here with us, and we hope that you all have a wonderful holiday. So enough sappy talk. Let's get right into it with our first article, Siemens no longer in the dark about power plant vulnerabilities. So the Siemens SPPA T3000, great system, distributed control system, which is designed for fossil and renewable power plants, is affected by over 50 vulnerabilities, including flaws that can be exploited to disrupt electricity generation. So, Emily, before we dive into these unique vulnerabilities and pull them apart, exactly how were these flaws and vulnerabilities discovered? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's over 50 of them, and they were discovered by various researchers at Kaspersky, um, Positive Technologies, and a company called Biznet Bilisim, which I am almost assuredly pronouncing wrong because I don't know how to pronounce that S with the little bottom tilde thing. Ah, the bottom tilde. Um, But... So the researchers discovered 19 vulnerabilities in the um, application server as well as an additional 35 in the migration server. So it looks like these researchers were actually kind of separately looking for vulnerabilities and started responsibly disclosing them to Siemens over a year ago. So that gave Siemens some time to start coming up with a patch um, or workaround before they just like told the world about them. So that's good. That's awesome. It's good to hear that it was uh, a responsible disclosure and that there's been work that's been done. So it sounds like some of these weaknesses were rated as critical. Um, what are some of the more concerning vulnerabilities and flaws uncovered by Kaspersky's and positive technologies and the whole gambit? Yeah. So the most critical flaws could actually allow an attacker to create a denial of service situation or to execute arbitrary code, which um, certainly would be bad. But that wasn't it, those weren't the only vulnerabilities. So in addition, there are some that could be used to change user passwords, obtain um, directory listings and files containing sensitive information. They could even escalate privileges, um, upload files, read and write files, and then um, all kinds of stuff, enumerate usernames. So long story short, because there's so many vulnerabilities, they're all pretty serious in that they can allow these attackers to do a lot of things. And then when you go and combine some of these, maybe, like there was one that you could escalate privileges to root. Well, combine that with any of these other ones, you know, uploading files, reading and writing files, you have a pretty a pretty serious situation on your hands. So um, 
there are some that by themselves are critical, but I think what makes this potentially even more critical is the fact that there's just a, a wide array of of potentiality here that can be combined in nefarious ways. Ooh, nefarious potentiality. <laughs> Disturbing indeed. <laughs> so I'm going to pivot here a little bit and get into some of the nit and grit of the article itself. And one piece that it touched on quite a bit was this application network. So what exactly is this and why are flaws in this particular area more concerning? And also, is it typically easy to gain access to these networks? That's a good question. So the application network is actually where the power plant operator would control the plant and also where um, he or she would send commands to the server. And the server is connected to the automation network with equipment connected to turbines and other field devices. So um, the vulnerabilities in any ICS environment are oftentimes more concerning than a regular corporate network because ICS environments can have real-world impacts if they're messed with, sometimes up to and including physical injuries and fatalities in the worst-case scenarios. Um, Flaws in this particular Siemens system in this application network can result in physical issues such as interrupting um, electrical generation and causing malfunctions at the power plants. Um, however, to your second point, Siemens has expressed that it is not at all easy for these vulnerabilities to be exploited as an attacker would have to have access to the application highway or the automation highway, which let's just take a moment to appreciate how cool those two terms sound. Um, <laughs> the application highway and the automation highway. Siemens has said that these network segments should not be exposed if the system has been set up as specified in the product security manual, which sounds a little bit like um, some SAS, in my opinion, <laughs> from Siemens. But basically they're saying if you set it up right the first time, it is going to be extremely difficult for an attacker to exploit these particular vulnerabilities. Interesting. Hmm. Do you take the information highway to get to the application highway? Let's call our friend Al Gore. Uh, <laughs> he invented it. <laughs> uh, do you have him on the phone, Emily? 1-800-AL-GORE. <laughs> Claudia spent money on that number. That's a, great. Not great for privacy, though, so I got that. <laughs> so what is Siemens doing to remediate this issue? Um, well, as I mentioned, Siemens is working on patching these vulnerabilities. However, in the meantime, they have released a list of workarounds and mitigations. The first one of which is literally an RTFM, read the freaking manual, suggestion, as I mentioned, which is reminding users to read the security manual in order to prop properly set up those highways I just talked about to restrict attacker access. There were some other um, mitigations as well, though, that are also mostly just reminders to users to properly set up the firewalls and external components to these um, to these systems in order to reduce the risk of these vulnerabilities. So um, as since Siemens is so, so convinced that um, it'll be difficult for an attacker to to access these, and their, their workaround at this point is basically set it up so the attacker can't even get to it before we even need to patch it. So that's kind of their thing right now. Hmm, interesting. And you've provided some great context into this already, but how concerning is this discovery? Some of these vulnerabilities are pretty concerning if attackers are able to exploit them. So, so far, Siemens says there is no evidence that any of these have been exploited in the wild. However, Vladimir Nazarov, great name, who is one of the researchers who discovered these vulnerabilities, has made it clear that these can have serious consequences, such as disruption of power generation, if exploited. He also said that the flaws that he discovered would be easy to exploit but agreed with Siemens that it would require an attacker to have extensive knowledge of the systems they were targeting. So once the attacker got on the system, they would be easy to exploit. Siemens' whole thing is that it's hard to get on the network. Um, 
This wouldn't really be out of the realm of possibility, though. If a well-funded, potentially nation-state type attacker really wanted to exploit these, they would likely take the time to research the system and fully understand it before attempting to exploit it. This is something that um, has been done before, where they might purchase even pieces of the physical hardware and do research on it in-house before attempting to exploit it. So having the the necessary knowledge of the system is not something that attackers are just going to be like, well, darn it, I don't know how this, this Siemens SPPAT3000 works, so I can't do this. Like, they're going to take the time to look into it. It all depends on what they have in the budget, though, that year. That's so true. we'll see. If there's a recession coming up, maybe you'll see that decrease. Surely there will be less cybercrime. That's how that works, right? Definitely crime goes down <laughs> when money goes down. Oh, wait. Math. Economics. <laughs> Excellent. Well, even though we could clearly talk about math and economics for a long period of time with our extensive knowledge here. So much knowledge. Uh, so much knowledge. Uh, so in the same week that the Siemens plant vulnerability was reported on, even though it was discovered and disclosed responsibly. Um, Also, now I'm thinking, you know, when you watch commercials and they're for alcoholic beverages and it's like... Consume responsibly. Drink responsibly. responsibly? Yeah. Report responsibly. I want that to be at every cybersecurity product commercial ever. I think that needs to be said really yeah. quickly in voice fine print, if you will. But anyway, getting back to the problem at hand here. So the same week that these vulnerabilities were publicly disclosed, the NDAA or National Defense Authorization Act had a power play of their <laughs> own. So things <laughs> like So Emily, can you <laughs> <laughs> can you speak a little bit to the significance potentially of Yeah, so the 2020 NDAA just passed the House last week, um, and it's on its way to being signed into law. So that is the power play of which you speak. Um, It includes the Securing Energy Infrastructure Bill, which is certainly a mouthful, and I... Can, I was like trying to turn it into an acronym and I was like the SIEB and I was like, nope, I see why they did not do that. <laughs> so, um, but it has a few goals, including identifying vulnerabilities and isolating critical grid systems, as well as implementing analog backups in case of a cyber attack. It would also create a working group to analyze and develop strategies to keep the, the grid safe. So while this isn't really directly related to the Siemens vulnerability in particular that we just talked about. It's certainly in the same vein of thought because attackers are looking for ways to interrupt power via means like the vulnerabilities we just discussed and having the NDAA in place will ensure that the grid is at least being looked at critically to um, ensure that it is much more difficult for an attacker to gain access. Well said, Emily. That was great. That was a mouthful. You nailed it. (laughs) Well, I think... Now that we've gotten a wide range of information about this uh, this set of vulnerabilities and flaws, again, thank you, Emily. I think it's a great time to segue into the hoodie scale. So as a quick reminder, our hoodie scale is from, it's pretty loose, but zero-ish to 10-ish hoodies. We do accept non-integers. Um, I actually prefer when we discuss infractions of hoodies, but really hoodies are meant to represent um, how many incident responders and defenders would be involved in remediating something like this. So 10 is the house is on fire and zero is let's have a nice chuckle. Here's a BuzzFeed article. So that's really where we're at. And I'm going to start with you, Tarek. Uh, this one I'm giving 1.21 gigawatts uh, as my hoodie rating. Um, that's me just trying to be funny. I really stink at it. probably <laughs> I should probably just stop with the back to no, the future references. No, that was beautiful. References. That was beautiful. Uh, I give this one like a four out of a five uh, when it comes to hoodie ratings. Four I out think of five the, or out of ten? 
Nine out of ten. Four okay, out of five. Okay. Thanks. Nine out of ten. How about eighty out of eighty-one? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we can just throw I, out these it numbers. It only confused me because we normally go out of 10. So when you said four, I was like, oh, low. But then out of five, and I was like, oh, mm, high. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. Let's go back to how we used to do it. Nine out of 10. Nine And the reason 10. why I say that is because uh, every time that I see these kind of vulnerabilities being disclosed and kind of reported on, where um, you're pretty much reliant on the vendor to execute and build a solid patch and get that deployed out quickly, one of the one of the big concerns I always have is that um, when vendors come back and say, yeah, you should apply the patch, but also, you know, you need to do X, Y, and Z, like network segmentation. Network segmentation is so important, and yet so many organizations and companies really struggle with it. So um, while everybody should do network segmentation, I think in reality that's not the case, um, and that really kind of bubbles up the concern that I have too. Plus, when it comes to getting these kind of systems patched, I'm sure there's massive amounts of processes and randomizations of people. So I don't anticipate, as severe as this is, I don't anticipate in reality these protections and patches being applied appropriately. And what's the impact? Kind of like what Emily was saying, that's like lives, right? You know, because power is affected. So it's a big one. What if I think, but you just have to read the manual and do what the manual says. Oh, that's yeah. what I've been doing wrong. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's negative one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> well said, Dark. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I agree that this one's um, a little more serious than some of the other ones that we sometimes talk about just because of the potential results. So I was going to go um, around a 7 or an 8, but I'm going to say 8. I was going back and forth there. I think sometimes I have a tendency to 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 minim- minimalize these. I'm like, eh, oh well. But like, I think <laughs> it's just if I take a step back and think about it, like this is pretty serious. Like. Siemens hasn't patched these yet. And so while the workaround is set it up right, um, if if only, you know what I mean? Like if only that was always the case, that things were always set up right. So until Siemens release, releases a patch for these, we're going to be reliant upon um, these networks and these like these ICS networks being set up properly in a way that doesn't make it easy for attackers to gain access. And I just, I find it hard to believe that we're not going to find that they weren't all set up properly you know it's just right. by nature of the way that these things work so yeah i'm gonna go with an eight just because i think that this could have pretty severe implications if an attacker was able to exploit any of these vulnerabilities or multiple of them well now that we're all properly concerned we should move on <laughs> to be potentially concerned about something else so uh thank you both for your input on that discussion and now we're going to move into Lowering the barrier to entry, API hooking and water bear malware, second subtitle, API. <laughs> <laughs> so the longstanding water bear campaign has returned with new evasion capabilities, employing API hooking techniques to hide its network behavior from security products. So this is a report actually from Trend Micro. So... Tarek, can you explain what API hooking is? That's and... not what it's called. <laughs> but Sorry, yes. British spelling. Um, API hooking and how this type of attack leverages malware. Yeah, totally. So API hooking isn't really, well, it's not a thing that's just centric to malware or exploitation. Um, it's really just like a normal operation for all operating systems. So, you know, um, essentially API hooking is when you have code that intercepts and takes some of uh, some sort of action in response to certain API calls, like 
um, messages that come up on windows or keystrokes or mouse inputs. Um, so I guess another way to think about it is whenever you like plug in a keyboard and then you see that little pop-up that says, hey, I detected a new keyboard, there's some API hooking going on there that's uh, popping up that message to let you know about that. There's a lot of things actually going on. Um, and so like a good real-world example of malicious API hooking um, that's not related to Waterbear is something I think everybody can kind of a little bit understand a little bit more, which is like uh, key logging. So key logging is a piece of software that is making procedural hooks into the API calls that are being made by the key logging malware, um, looking for specific functions, capturing those keystrokes, and then writing them to a file. So in this case, what you're doing is WaterBear is leveraging API hooking to do a lot of these kind of calls and doing certain kind of actions based on those calls. So WaterBear um, specifically leverages API hooking in a way to hide specific processes um, against like a handful of really targeted AV solutions. Um, and in addition to masking, it's like behavior from like a behavioral standpoint. Whenever um, antivirus products look for um, malware to call certain API functions, like for example, if you see a piece of software calling the Windows keyboard state function, um, and a lot, of, a lot of other conditions exist too, there's a high likelihood that's probably a piece of key logging software and it's malicious. Um, and so what WaterBear does, WaterBear uh, has some really crazy techniques um, where it's able to kind of stuff and hide itself from certain AV solutions from seeing what it's doing to hide its behavior. Um, so we have like a multi-stage kind of setup here with uh, WaterBear, and I know we are going to be talking about that later too. Um, but it's a pretty sophisticated piece of malware that's uh, I was kind of uh, mind blown when I was reading a lot about of its capabilities. Well said, Tarek. I fell for that description. Hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> so good. So can you talk a little bit more about the threat actors behind WaterBear malware? Yeah, and big shout out to Trend Micro's researchers for having some really awesome data points uh, for me to research and kind of read up on WaterBear's um, threat group. So the, the associated threat group is a uh, title called Black Tech. Um, now, we don't really understand too much of their origins. I think we can infer quite a bit of their origins, but we do know quite a bit about um, the target institutions and companies that are common victims of uh, black tech's attacks. Um, and they're primarily based out of Taiwan and occasionally Japan. Um, and so, um, you know, me, uh, just based off of what I've read, I would say there's a reasonable amount of confidence we can assume uh, based on the political relationships with uh, Taiwan and Japan. This is probably a Chinese-originated threat group, you know, especially because um, Trend Micro's done some really good research, uh, really dissecting a lot of the TTPs and the malware used by uh, black tech. It's it's extremely sophisticated stuff, and it really reeks of um, you know um, uh, threat groups that are well funded and um, well resourced. Um, this isn't something that um, could be done trivially. You'd probably need multiple teams and um, have really good data points too to like understand how to craft malware specifically against a lot of these targets. And black tech really does that, um, and they're really associated too um, with. Um, stealing of intellectual property and stealing of data, um, which kind of really uh, uh, bleeds into the whole, um, this is highly likely to be maybe Chinese of origin. This is kind of fitting a lot of those common patterns that we see out of Chinese threat groups. That's awesome, Tarek. Thank you for that deep dive. 
And I'd love to actually talk now about this recent campaign that occurred in APAC. So can you walk through the two payloads that were loaded in this scenario? Yeah, yeah. And this one, this one's really interesting, too. Um, we should give our users a link to the Trend Micro. Um, there's a really good visual here to kind of do a nice breakdown of how the multi-stage Waterbury malware executes, because um, it is relatively complex. We're dealing with two payloads that are all in machine code or shell code um, using um, multiple, two different techniques based on the conditions of the victim and what they have operating. Um, so one of those is a um, DLL hijacking. And um, what DLL hijacking essentially is, is um, you're making a call um, from a legitimate application and you're importing malicious code and it gets executed under the guise of that legitimate application. And that's what Waterbear does. Um, and there's some really good articles on about four or five different specific server-based um, applications that the Black Tech Waterbear malware does uh, specifically attack. Um, so I encourage users, um, if you do operate in an environment that may be uh, a target for Black Tech and or Waterbear to kind of look and see if you're all running those kinds of applications on your network. Um, the other means that Waterbear um, does is um, a thing called DLL sideloading. Um, and that's a really common technique we see in more commod not in commodity malware, uh, but um, let's be clear that doesn't mean that it is a um, low sophisticated means of um, um, evading detection. It's actually still relatively sophisticated. And what that really does is you take a legitimate DLL that's being executed, and um, you're able to do an import um, based off of like the namespace of where the the DLL is being called from. And you're actually able to import malicious code that way and get it called. Um, so once either of these techniques are done, um, Waterbear can run the rest of its operations under whatever privilege those executables are running as. And in this specific case of the server software that they target are almost always in elevated mode. Um, and Waterbear, or in this case, Black Tech, they're really common um, attack vectors are generally like through email um, malicious payloads and um, or malicious attachments and um, through phishing campaigns and phishing techniques. Um, but the Waterbear's first, sta uh, first stage backdoor um, is really interesting. Um, it dynamically stores all of its configuration data um, inside of its own process. And then on runtime, everything kind of just unwraps and the malware is able to call its C2 configuration information and um, um, like its import tables and all these really cool functions and stuff that it does, but it's all masqueraded and doesn't actually run um, until runtime. Whereas more traditional malware, you can do static analysis on it like, hey, I want to run my strings command and oh, look, I can see the C2 IP address embedded right there. Um, so this one has some really cool um, means of um, evading traditional um, uh, detection means. That's a great breakdown, Tarek. And every time I see that a malware is modular, I just want somebody to go, this is totally modular. <laughs> you can do it. Be the change you I will. See. I will. This is definitely what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything unique about this campaign for Waterbear specifically? Yes. Um, so a lot of the techniques that are, or I'm sorry, a lot of a way that Waterbear's built isn't groundbreaking in the sense of new techniques. Like a lot of what they have um, done are all captured in MITRE ATT&CK, for example. But it's the it's the way in, in which it's all assembled together. Um, and there's some really interesting data points on Waterbear. Um, it's extremely tailored towards um, the victim's operating system as opposed to being a very arbitrary piece of malware that's 
kind of um, large in scope and is able to run on any platform. This is extremely like targeted. Um, so I really encourage people to kind of read a little bit more um, from Trend Micro on that. It's a very, very much like a highly technical in-depth visual thing. Um, but for me personally, I captured a couple ideas that um, I really loved about Waterbear from like a malware standpoint. Um, like being able to dynamically load um, a lot of its API calls and, and um, DLLs through shell code was really cool. Um, and using those API hooks that we talked about earlier to look for common security products that are being called or being used on the endpoint and to kind of just detect and evade them. Um, I'm always a big fan of any type of really neat like anti-forensic stuff that happens with malware. And this thing does uh, binary padding. So fills areas of memory with like junk data to throw off like detections for behavioral um, uh, antivirus. I thought that was super cool. Um, and it also uses private IP addresses for a lot of its CNC operations. So what that really tells you is that the black tech folks have to infiltrate multiple pieces of internal infrastructure, and then it sets up its um, proxy that way so that WaterBear, when they decide or where they decide to drop WaterBear, has a proxy connection back to the C2 through another piece of internal um, um, compromised asset. So it adds a lot of complexity. So for example, if you're a SOC analyst and you're going through your SIM looking at logs, you're going to see just legitimate traffic, maybe over HTTP, um, going from one internal computer to another internal computer. You're probably going to miss that. And it's definitely not going to look um, malicious. It's not going to be like a behavioral anomaly. So um, it really speaks to the sophistication of WaterBear. Well said. And what does that mean for the impact of this campaign? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about how do I quantify the impact of this? And I really always think about it in the context of like, what happens if I had to defend against this? And I think if I were a company that, or if I were in charge of protecting a company or assets that are based out of East Asia, you know, that, that deal with um, really important technology or really important data, um, you know, whether a tech company or um, a financial institution or um, something in the um, education space um, in Taiwan or Japan, I would be on high alert. I would, I would, I know this might sound a little cliche, but really kind of evaluate your security controls. We talked a little bit earlier about the Siemens uh, vulnerabilities, but do you have adequate, um, you know, network segmentation in, in place? Like your, um, do you have a crown jewels program in place to say, hey, I know where my most important data exists and I know how to get there? Because as sophisticated as this water bear malware is, it can't magically jump networks. You know, if you have proper network segmentation in place, protecting your crown jewels program. So those are things I would do. Um, I think the impact is really huge because um, for your traditional um, companies that don't have a lot of security resources, um, traditional AV isn't going to detect this. And I would be questionable if sophisticated behavioral AV would too. So to be determined. TBD. Well, I think you all know what's coming next. Emily. What do you rate this at? I've been going back and forth on this one. Um, I was initially going to give it a four, but I think Tark just scare talked me into maybe a five or a six. Um, he's pumping his fist up and down for our listeners at home. Um, so the reason I say that is because um, I was initially going to go with a four because this is sophisticated, but the current targeting list, if you will, is pretty small. If you're not in Asia Pacific, um, this may not affect you. And so given the industry as a whole, that is a pretty like 
niche little area for this to be targeting. So I feel like that lowers the impact and therefore brings this down. However, that might be um, swung over to the other end from how advanced this malware is that Tark was just talking about, especially with the evasion aspects of it. So um, given all that, I'm going to go just with a five, something right smack dab in the middle in that this is certainly something for you to keep an eye out for, especially um, if you are in Asia Pacific and especially if you work in an industry that's on China's what is it? How many years plan? Five years plan? Whatever plan they always have, then this is something that um, you should be looking out for. And even if you're not, I would still say this is something just to keep an eye out for, especially because um, this this is not this I would this is not going to be the last piece of malware that can do this. So this is a, a type of thing where if you can get out ahead of it and say this malware is not going to be targeting me, but I'm still going to figure out how I need to change my security controls in order to defend against it, then later down the road when there's another type of malware that's going to target you, then you'll already be prepared to defend against it. So all that to say, five out of ten hoodies. Well said. What do you think, Tarek? Jeez, I, I'm not even kidding when I say this, but samesies. Like, I just want to <laughs> copy your answer and your rating. That was perfectly well said, and I agree with 110%. Like, I don't even need to rehash it. Well job. Perfect. Well job. Well job. Well job. Good job. Well done. Well Thank job. Thank you. Bob's your uncle. Yeah, no, you took the words out of my mouth. That's like perfectly well said. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Agreement, which is perfect because now we pit each other against each other. Now the gloves are off. The gloves are off. Two truths and a lie, which is kind of, you know, never mind. We won't get into that. What? Well, you can't tease. Come well, on. just it doesn't make sense if the gloves are coming off. It probably means you're going to do something nefarious, but wouldn't you want the gloves on to hide your fingerprints at that point? You're Not fighting. everybody wants you're to fighting. murder you're people. Fighting. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, jeez. <laughs> this is what the... you two have done to me yeah, with all geez. of your knowledge. The gloves, <laughs> in this case, are the boxing gloves. Oh, I see, I see, I see. When you take them off, you're done hitting someone with a padded glove, and you're ready to throw down. Oh, the gloves? Throwed. Emily... Just let the record show punched the air, and it was scary. I've done self-defense <laughs> classes with this woman, and she defends well I accidentally by herself. Do <laughs> you remember that? Accidentally. It was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I promise to cut out the part you said. Otherwise, <laughs> please don't make me bleed my own blood. Okay, well, Blame two truths and a lie. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine, you know. So it's Tariq's turn this week for our classic game of Two Truths and a Lie, where we take normal Two Truths and a Lie with an InfoSec twist. Um, and so Tarek will have three articles, titles that he'll say out loud, two of which are real article titles, one of which is a lie. And Emily and I will do our best to sniff out <laughs> the lie. <laughs> Your devotion to the drama is impeccable. This microphone does not smell great. I will say that. (laughs) It's from the hot air. It's the hot air, yes. (laughs) And so there's a point system, of course. So the number of times Tarek tricks either Emily or myself, he gets one point. So as an example, if he tricks me, he gets one point. But if Emily or myself is correct in sniffing out the lie, we get a point. And we will continue to add that to our scoreboard, which is featured in the blog post that you are definitely listening to as you listen along. Or you're definitely reading as you're listening along to the podcast, obviously. So, Tarek, hit us with your best bet your best shot. I just I really think you need to level set the audience about how far ahead I am points wise. <laughs> I really I didn't want to cover that at all. You totally <laughs> 
Totally missed it. Oh, that was salt in the wound. Just yeah. rubbing it. Oh, Just God. remember how many points ahead I am. Uh, I try to forget. Every morning I try to forget. It's a lot, by the way. <laughs> how, actually, how many is it, though? Let's not talk about okay. it. <laughs> I've been ignoring it because I know I'm so far in last place that it's like, it's funny, actually, how bad it is. It's like, at just, yeah. Are you guys ready to lose some more? Yes. Yay! I okay. have accepted that fate. So let's continue. Now she's going to start winning all the time. That's right. Damn she has nothing it. to lose. Dagnabbit! it. Okay, here we go. So, <laughs> Oracle's e-business suite recently had extremely high-impact vulnerabilities disclosed that would allow attackers to gain full control over the financial system solution that they offer, up to and including allowing financial theft and fraud. Wait, wait, what wait, wait. Headline or the this first is, paragraph? This Jamie is like Christmas. Parks and Rec with <laughs> Leslie Nope's titles that are the entire article. All right, Tarek. All I right. didn't even get to tell you the name of the vulnerabilities. That's oh. my favorite part. Oh, okay, yes, yes, yes. The vulnerability name, Payday. <laughs> okay, so Good Oracle has a financial system and it has a bunch of vulnerabilities. The vulnerabilities are called payday. Okay. That's the first one. You should have written the headline because that was way better than whatever you <laughs> <laughs> uh, The other one. Or he did or he and that did, was false. Hmm, okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, dude. There's so much thought I put into this. <laughs> I'm not even being ironic here. <laughs> I, I remember Emily told me like, you're like, oh, it's really likely that this certain one is always the fake one. And I remembered that and now the order's been shifted. Or so. you're saying that, but you didn't shift the order Continue. Mm, see, I'm in your you, head. Never, you never know. I'm trying to bypass your guys' detections, is what I'm doing. This is no trivial pursuit, Tari. <laughs> so, the threat actors behind the Revil uh, ransomware and the Gancrab ransomware are the same threat actor group. Hmm. Noodle on that. Noodle. Noodling away. And last but not least, Rapid 7's Metasploits modules have been announced that it will be no longer supported past 2021. Metasploit! So, hmm. in summary, Oracle's e-business suite, payday vulnerability, threat actors behind Revil and Gancrab, samesies, <laughs> Rapid7's Metasploit, Dunskies after 2021. <laughs> Dunskies. I like that summary. Payskies, samesies, Dunskies. That's the summary. That summarizes everything, really. <laughs> I still have no clue. <laughs> Do you want to go first or second, Emily? Um... Well, I'm still um, a noodling. So You're noodling. If you are done noodling, you're welcome to. <sighs> I was hoping you would bite on that. I can go first if you want. I would like that very okay. much. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to level set and state that I have no freaking clue which one is true or which one's a lie. Because I'm so far behind on the news right now <laughs> because I have too much going on like in my life. And that is a sad thing. Wow. So if one of us gets this right, if I get this right, is that saying that I don't have a life, Emily? Are you throwing Ooh. proactive shade? In mm. my face? <laughs> what is with the <laughs> hand motion? That's my face. Okay. Oh, my bad. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I will say that if either of us get it right, it could either mean that we have no life or that we are just good guessers. But what I'm saying is I usually feel like I try to read the news a lot and I've actually been like drowning the last couple of weeks and sad and not keeping up with the news. So there are some of these that I'm like actually going to go look up later if they're true because I haven't heard about them and they're interesting. Um, but I'm going to go with the... Gonna go with the um, the Revil Gand Crab one, okay. being the lie. Okay. And you, I, Miss Labelle. I'm gonna go with the first one. 
Pays payday? Payday. Oh, man. And that's the one that's, that you think is the lie? I think that's the lie. Ladies, you are both wrong. Son of a... It was Metasploit. They're not. No. They're still supported. They're still supported past 2021. Knock on table. Knock on table. But no official announcement yet. God, I am oh, good at you this. Really are. I am so good. Emily, we have lives. Mm. <laughs> High five. Bad at one thing, good at the other. Everybody <laughs> wins. <laughs> but not according to the scoreboard. <laughs> I am only slightly terrified of Tarek and going to be real. Like He's very good at lying. Very good. Better. Very good. That was a high five. That was a very good high five. That was a very good high five. Well, we're going to end on that happy and pleasant note. Thank you both again. And wishing everyone here a fantastic end to your 2019 and just a, a wonderful 2020 as well. So happy holidays. And we'll be in your ears again in 2020. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click. <laughs> <laughs>